Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Yumi Narita, the Executive Director of Corporate Governance at the Comptroller's Office of New York City. The Comptroller serves as investment advisor, custodian, and a trustee to the New York City pension funds, which hold approximately $228 billion of assets under management. In a role as executive director, Yumi is responsible for developing and implementing active ownership programs for public equities, including voting proxies, engaging portfolio companies on their ESG policies and practices, and advocating for regulatory reforms to protect investors and strengthen investor rights. Yumi has 16 years of experience in the ESG industry. Prior to this role, she was the global head of corporate governance at Alliance Bernstein and vice president on the BlackRock stewardship team. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Yumi, it is such a pleasure to have you in this podcast. It's been a long time. We've been playing tags in terms of timing, but finally we're here. And I'm so happy to reconnect with you, even though you're in New York now and and I'm still here in in San Francisco. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Um, I miss California, I must say, since that is where my heart is. But Mm -hmm. uh, being in New York, I think, has also been a definitely interesting experience, particularly this year um, around proxy season. It was um, a bit of a maelstrom activity, okay. but I think that we seem to have a handle on things in New York, so it's it's very good. All right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll go into those issues, which are really interesting and. As you know, this uh, podcast, uh, we have many different people who touch corporate governance in a different way. So directors and investors and professionals who work on governance issues. And one of the voices that I want to bring into the podcast is the investor voice. And that's why your view is so interesting coming from the office of the New York City Comptroller's Office, and we'll talk about that. But before we dig into your precise role now, I always ask guests, you know, let's talk about you and your origin story, and let's start from there. And uh, let me ask you, where did you grow up? Ah, interesting. Curveball. Um, (laughs) So I grew up, I was born in Tokyo, Japan, and I was Mm -hmm. there until about second grade and then the rest of my life until New York has been spent in California, mainly Southern California. So I grew up in a little town called San Pedro, which is only known because of its uh, neighboring city, Long Beach. It is the Mm -hmm. South Bay of South California. So a pretty um, unremarkable childhood spent in sunny Southern California. (laughs) Okay. And then you you studied at Berkeley? I did indeed. Yes. Um, So I went just far enough from my parents up to Northern California Mm -hmm. and uh, spent time majoring in um, anthropology, which is, I think, interesting training to, to think about structures and cultures and 
sort of societal norms when you think about governance. So I did not plan anthropology mm-hmm. to be my gateway drug into governance, but um, it somehow was an accident that from my employee at the Asian Art Museum upon graduation, I uh, started randomly working at a little company called Barclays Global Investors, mm-hmm. which was ultimately bought up by a much bigger company that is well-known, BlackRock. Okay. So you did spend many years at BlackRock and Barclays, <laughs> uh, and, and that's how we met when you were a, a, a governance officer there. What can you? What did you learn working at BlackRock all those years in that in your role as as in the investment uh, and 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 proxy side? Yeah. So when I started, um, no one knew what I was doing. Just as an FYI. So back in two thousand four, no one in the outside. <laughs> n- no, not even in the firm. Okay. Okay. So, so back in two thousand four, our group was called Pro- the Proxy Voting Group. Mm-hmm. And um, I think governance was sort of in its nascent, you know, still um, period. And so most of what I think investors were doing when it came to proxy voting was very operational. So managing paper ballots were still a thing, you know, mm-hmm. when I first started and faxing paper ballots to companies with control numbers. And much of, I think, what we did back then was... Um, creating a more efficient platform on which to vote. And I don't think the content of what we were voting on was very important, nor were we ever engaging companies at that point. And the big change, I think, was the financial crisis. So between 2007 and 2008, at least in the investor world, it became uh, more of a risk fiduciary measure to oversee portfolio companies and hence, um, I remember talking to, you know, a dozen um, banks and investment firms at that time and their boards to assess, you know, what they were doing to mm-hmm. ride out, I think, some of the, the turmoil in the market. And, you know, it was a really interesting time to, to, to be in the industry because our company was suffering, of course. We were also in the financial industry. And yet we were having to sort of manage um, engagements with, you know, other companies that some of them, you know, no longer exist. So I I think that created, I think, a more um, direct line between investors and companies and in particular boards to, you know, check in. I think Sarbanes-Oxley was the second um, big uh, tool, I think, to get companies to do more um, in terms of investors. So, you, you mean Dodd Frank? Right. Sorry. Yeah, Dodd mm-hmm. Frank. Yeah, Dodd Frank. So mm-hmm. the stay on pay vote, mm-hmm. I think, was you know what companies then sort of feared investors would sort of wield um, negatively against company management compensation. So until I would say that 2007 through 2009 period. Um, we, we weren't doing as much. And then it became, um, so then we got bought out by BlackRock and we became an even more um, of a bigger player within the industry. And on top of it became a public entity as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were under the umbrella of Barclays, but we became 
BlackRock with its own stockholders um, and its own, I think, uh, ups and downs, you know, in terms of that. And what I learned from my experience there was, you know, BlackRock manages money for a, such a wide spectrum mm-hmm. of clients. And that means, you know, for every person that wants an asset manager to be very progressive around the environment, there are people who don't believe in climate change. You know, I had a discussion once with, um, a foundation in the middle of the country who believed in the second amendment. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, you know, BlackRock had come out against um, some of the, well, not in gets, but engaging some of the firearms companies within its portfolio that it was invested in as, as a passive manager. And so, you know, there wasn't a question of divesting out of those firms, but mitigating again, that risk. And having to talk to a client, you know, who believed in the second amendment, who believed in sort of the coastal progressives, you know, having their own agenda, you know, you, I think you learn a lot about um, some of the, I think, high hurdles that asset managers have to um, get over in terms of their fiduciary duty, because ultimately, what we do as fiduciaries is for our beneficiaries, our clients. And if you have, you know, this rainbow coalition of clients, you know, what, what can you do to sort of um, thread that needle? Well, that's really interesting because it goes into politics and, and thinking how uh, these uh, decisions or policies impact different people. We obviously are going through, a contested election. Well, there is a president elect, but there were, you know, a significant amount of people who still voted for Trump. And so that's a reality in which this country lives. And and certainly there is a contrast between the coasts and inland. And so uh, the big investment firms and uh, proxy voting uh, policies maybe reflect some of that. And, and so, uh, as we go into into this engagement policy, so you left BlackRock uh, in 2018. Tell us what you did after that. So I worked for then. So I decided from a passive manager, I would go to an active one. Mm-hmm. And I worked at uh, Alliance Bernstein, you know, which um, is basically, how can I put it, coming from BlackRock? It, it's a very different structure Mm-hmm. to come from um, a firm that basically holds a company in its index or indices versus one where there's multiple groups of portfolio managers who pick a stock. Mm-hmm. And so the the upside is that you get a lot more, I think, company-specific information in a way that it's a little bit harder um, mm-hmm. at a passive shop, although not impossible but I think the downside is, you know, the portfolio managers, depending on their time horizon, depending on their strategy, may feel a little bit differently about governance than a sort of centralized, you know, governance team. So, for example, um, portfolio managers may think overboarding is not an issue at a mm-hmm. company because they know these directors you know, and that they engage them every other month in terms of their strategies. So they might come to you and say, I don't think, you know, Jane Doe is an mm-hmm. issue. Let's support her at mm-hmm. this company, that sort of thing. So it, to me, um, sort of showcased, I think, 
how nuanced a vote can get when you have now not just different clients who are invested in a particular product, but different people who are managing the money directly. You know, so it was it was really fascinating, I think, and I I learned a lot. So, for example, the Australian, the European portfolio management teams were much, much more, you know, strong, I think, on environmental and social um, risks at a company versus some of the U.S. portfolio managers. You know, things that you would kind of know, I think, in the abstract was it's really clear to me um, having worked there for a while. That's a really good point. I remember reading once there was a portfolio manager at, I think it was Tiro Price. He believed that Snap was a good investment and he wasn't opposed to the dual clause share structure there because uh, ultimately Facebook would acquire them and, and that Evan Spiegel deserved you know, to be in the market. Yeah. Uh, and and I remember the dissonance in some ways. You had a portfolio manager who was very much in favor of it, where the policy uh, of many or most of the uh, voting people and these large <laughs> institutional investors are very much against dual clause share yes. structures. And how do you reconcile? I mean, you just made a very interesting point about the dissonance between the pro- the portfolio managers and the governance uh, teams. How yeah. does that uh, does it work differently per firm? And and, yeah. and and how do you uh, engage with them? Yeah, I think it works differently per firm and probably per portfolio management team. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's very granular. So, for example, you know, one team that is a value strategy may think differently versus mm-hmm. a growth strategy. And it involves, I think, a lot of discussion and also outreach, you know, to the company and boards themselves, where you're basically sort of vetting, you know, for yourself what a portfolio manager is saying. I think often, though, and, you know, this, again, is different from differently actively managed shops. Portfolio managers generally, I would say, at least Alliance Bernstein, they, they can control that vote mm-hmm. you know, to, to a degree. So what you're giving them is sort of background Got it. and firm mm-hmm. policy, and then they may make the ultimate decision. And, and even at BlackRock, you know, even though there's only, I think, a smaller percentage of things are actively managed, you know, in theory, the active portfolio managers can control a vote. And in particular, I think where there's most dissonance might be in a merger situation, you know, where there's like a short time horizon for a portfolio management group versus I think a governance team, which might be looking in the long term or a proxy contest. I think those are where you can really see that there's um, a little bit of a difference in outlook. Okay. So then uh, tell us how you got into the office of the New York City Controllers. And and certainly I want to know more about your role. Now you're the executive director of corporate governance. So maybe you can tell us more about uh, that uh, shift in your career. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know what happened. I guess it was because I was in New York. And and I decided, you know, I wanted to do something a little bit different than what I've been doing for, you know, basically those past um, 15, 15 mm-hmm. years, which was around a lot of voting and engagement and creating policy. But I think asset managers, for the reasons that um, 
we've discussed there, it's hard for them to be advocates, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to collaborate because it's considered collusion and they're tightly regulated by um, asset managers, the SEC and the OCC. So everything is like under this sort of bubble of Mm -hmm. um, what you can and can't do. And the attractive thing about New York City Comptroller is I only had basically five public pension funds as mm-hmm. my sort of beneficiaries and the trustees within each of those. Um, and to list them out, it is New York City employees, the teachers, police, uh, firefighters, and school administrators. So we're going from that wide rainbow of clients into much more narrow and focused sort of vision that these trustees have on behalf of their own sort of beneficiaries, plan beneficiaries. And what you can do in an asset owner is, you know, bang pots and, you know, speak loudly. And um, Scott Stringer, who's the comptroller, who's Mm -hmm. basically uh, the fiduciary custodian on behalf of the public pension funds, you know, I mean, if you're in New York, you probably know who Scott Stringer is because <laughs> he's um, he's very vocal um, and uh, he you know uses, I think, that bullhorn to really, I think, advocate for things that we think are in the best interest of all investors. So, you know, what I do now, a lot of my work is, um, for example, shareholder proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, statements and um, initiating dialogue with companies that way. And, you know, again, the difference is a BlackRock or even an As- uh, Alliance Bernstein holds a lot more of every company than any asset owner could, you know, and with certain basis points of, let's say, an Apple or mm-hmm. a Facebook, you know, how much leverage do you have to get companies to engage with you? I would say it's it's you know, we're pretty low priority generally, and so what we do instead is you know write a letter to companies mm-hmm. to explain a certain initiative, and then follow that up with discussions, and then sort of an escalation into I think a proposal, a shareholder proposal. So you know a lot of <laughs> what I do now is editing and writing those types of statements as well as sending a lot of comment letters to regulators on what we think is um a step backwards or you know a completely wrong decision which you know we may elaborate a little bit later so essentially you you moved a little bit to be more active in terms of your engagement in a in a freer way and and that's that's really interesting now the New York City pension funds, uh, the, you, you know, there's $228 billion of assets under management. It's not that small. And obviously, <laughs> right. we, we, we we have heard uh, a lot of what uh, Scott Stringer has been doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the boardroom accountability projects, with, which I think have, have made a lot of impact on the governance world. But, but before we go into that, um, I have a few questions on the regulatory side. Obviously, the SEC mm-hmm. and the Department of Labor recently in the Trump administration have ruled or proposed uh, new rules that impact investors. How do you see that from your perspective from the office of the New York City Controller? Yeah, so it's it was pretty... Um interesting how quickly those decisions came down this year you know when sometimes we're sort of like like governance is the forgotten lamb you know of the regulators and 
I think in, in sort of concert, both the SEC and the DOL were ensuring that investors actually didn't have a voice. So that would be sort of my overarching comment around, you know, the um, regulation that was being passed, you know. And what's fascinating is the SEC's mandate, or at least um Jay Clayton's mandate seems to be mainstream investors. So you hear a lot of discussion around mainstream investors. But if you look at the shareholder proposal rule, as well as the proxy advisory firm rule, it's heavily tilted toward business, right? So it's sort of, I mean, mainstream investors to me, in my mind, and maybe we have different opinions on this, are teachers. You know, they are school administrators, they are um, employees. And if we are given obstacles on what we can do, I, I really don't see that there's sort of accountability to that higher mission, um, at least at the SEC. So going into, in particular, um, the shareholder proposal rule, the, the first thing I would say is that they're generally non-binding. Mm -hmm. Right. A shareholder proposal is a request for a company to do something. And by and, the way, yeah. uh, just so for the people who don't know this rule, essentially the SEC has increased the threshold yes. for a shareholder proposals. It used to be that if you held $2,000 for one year, you could uh, have a shareholder proposal. Now the threshold is $2,000 for three years, and then there is $15,000 for two years or $25,000 for one year, right? So yep. it, it blocks out or takes out a lot of people, the, the small uh, shareholders to issue these shareholder proposals. Yeah. So in particular, it would be an individual investor. Right. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. The New York City Comptroller isn't as affected too much right. by those thresholds in terms of submission. But, you know, if any John Smith wanted to um, be able to engage one of his holdings companies, his companies that he he holds, he can't just call up you know, management or the board and have a discussion. What he would have to do generally is submit a shareholder proposal. So that really, I think, impacts any individual investor. And, and let me ask you there. So so sometimes uh, these individuals are called gatflies and, and, and there have been, you know, five or six of them who historically, at least over the, the last mm -hmm. five years, have proposed the majority of these proposals. What how do you see it? How helpful are they in, mm -hmm. in, for example, in your role? And mm -hmm. is this something that you feel adds value into the uh, ecosystem in corporate governance? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, the history is long and convoluted in sure. regards to shareholder proposals. But, you know, one of the um, initiatives that we brought up in our SEC letter is, you know, part of the move toward um, trying to focus on apartheid in South Africa was through religious faith groups doing shareholder proposals, you mm -hmm. know. So I think that overall the impact can be positive in regards to shareholder proposals. And again, it's only a request for a company to do something. Even the request itself is limited by 500 words. So 
yes, I believe that there might be some shareholder proposals that are not as impactful as others. Mm -hmm. And I'll even say that in the past two or three years, it's not just a tool for progressives, right? There are conservative, I think, groups that are using shareholder proposals to promote their own sort of goals with companies. So it can go, you know, either way. Um, But I think ultimately, if you own part of a company, you should have some voice in it. And the way that I think the tide is turning is how much money that you own in a company actually decides what you can say to the company. And ultimately, it'll be the top five holders of any company that, you know, the board or management might care about. And I, and I don't think that's sort of the, the right thing to do for the reasons that I described in regards to, you know, asset managers and their limitations, depending on... Can I ask you a question around that? So, so in the academic side, there's been yeah. a lot of discussion around the rise of the big three or big five where... <laughs> You know, uh, they have accumulated so much, uh, you know, assets on the management mm-hmm. uh, that over time uh, they will have the the voice in governance, right. and they may have the agenda over corporate governance and and, and the majority of the companies. How do you think about those uh, claims or those fears? in some corners, even at some degree, some people are asking on antitrust issues uh, yeah. on, on 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 these asset managers. Sure. So I think, you know, there's two ways to look at it. I think that it is concerning from a governance perspective in terms of the the voice, right? If we think um, the amount of shares held equals how much say you have in a company, Mm -hmm. and generally those that hold the most, and I'm, you know, completely generalizing, they're never going to be like the first leader in the pack on any issue. You know, I think that they are evolutionary but they're never going to be revolutionary because their impact is sort of let's wait and see how it goes and how the market reacts and how our clients think about these things and then we may go forward on certain issues so you know even for example um, when I was at BGI uh, we advocated against say on pay you know, mm-hmm. just because we, you know, we were like, no, investors shouldn't have that voice. And now sort of hindsight being 2020, there's good things about it and there's bad things about it. Um, so I, I do think it's concerning from a governance perspective. I think in terms of antitrust, though, there's a lot that's said around cross holdings, mm-hmm. let's say of airlines, right? That's the big sort mm-hmm. of, I think, mm-hmm. in me when it comes to that, you know, they're because it's passive, Right. Um, because they're not actively choosing that stock, I think there there's less concern from my perspective. Really, for example, when it comes to mergers, you know, in my old job when when I had it, you looked at the company in its own right for the investors for that particular company. So you may support one side of a merger and vote against the other side of the merger, you know, that happened um, quite a few times. So I do think that they're taking that fiduciary duty very seriously in terms of their clients and beneficiaries. But um, yeah, the governance standards, I think, are are pretty, maybe they're not alarming, but I, I would say they're concerning. 
Okay. And so on the one hand, we have the SEC uh, changing some of the uh, shareholder uh, proposal rules. And then there is the Department of Labor uh, on a new rule on consideration of only pecuniary and not ESG factors in investment decisions. What do you make out of that uh, proposal? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just, I don't understand. No one saw that one coming, right? Mm-hmm. We were all like, what happened? What happened to OL? So our team and our office is not um, under the regulatory mandate of the DOL. But again, you know, many asset managers have ERISA clients. And mm-hmm. so they're, you know, they're sort of the targets, I think, in this. And it echoes, I think, some of the more, um, Republican voices in the SEC in terms of what ESG can and can't do. Um, I think it will be really chilling, um, in particular for active managers, right? Because active managers will always want the support that what they're doing is supported by regulation to do their fiduciary duty. And if there's some sort of out for that, you know, that they don't have to consider it, they will look to just purely financial implications, which I think is not very um, long-term. And also, I think, overturns some of the things that we were thinking about, uh, stewardship, you know, some of the things where our, our horizon as investors have become longer as companies have sort of more um, control you know, particularly in the U.S. when it comes to sort of what happens with climate and society. Yeah, I mean, I think the last figure I saw is that it was about a trillion dollars of funds going into ESG. Obviously, it's been probably one of the biggest trends in the governance Mm -hmm. circles. And really, more than ESG, it's been environmental and social because governance has always been, the GE side has has been a focus. And any thoughts or you know maybe projections on what's going to happen in a Biden uh, government? I mean, oh gosh, yeah. Well, hopefully, all of all that has been overturned with the EPA, mm-hmm. you know, will be put on hold or put back in. I mean, this year, for example, um, we got involved with some of the cafe standards, you mm-hmm. know, and for example, California having right tougher emissions than the federal emissions when it sure. came to cars. And some companies, you know, um, were supporting California and some companies, you know, automobile companies went against it. And so I think these are sort of the issues that we have to look at in the foreground is, you know, given, I think, some of the absence in federal regulations, who is sort of filling these gaps, you know, and where can investors make impact? So my hope is that some of the things with the SEC and the DOL, of course, as well, are sort of mitigated, you know, by the Biden mm-hmm. administration, as well as um, federal sort of rules around, I think, um, even Affordable Cares Act, right, which is so incredibly important during, I think, this pandemic. Yeah. So I remember uh, one of the first 
big initiatives that uh, I noticed from the New York City's controller's office was the proxy access initiative and the boardroom accountability project in 2014, which was incredibly successful. So for those uh, people, just a reminder, uh, in Dodd-Frank, there was a proposed proxy access rule where if you had 3% of the shares held for over three years, you could nominate up to 25% of the board and the shareholders would have a nomination right. This obviously has been a big battle over decades and uh, it was overturned in a court decision. And the New York City's Controller's Office uh, created this initiative where very successfully they uh, had proposals, I think it was 75 companies, to adopt a proxy access rule that was very similar, if not the same as the one proposed on Dodd-Frank. And uh, over time, the incredible thing is that over 600 companies today have adopted proxy access. This was a very, very interesting initiative. What can you tell us about that first uh, initiative in 2014? Obviously, you weren't there, but maybe what's the proxy access uh, view that you have in these days? And is it continuing in in that realm? Yeah, I know. I think it's um, a good question. And I will give, you know, all credit to the the team that was here at that time, um, who, who got that through. I think, you know, ultimately, it's about accountability. And that's what our office, you know, really, I think that's their, that's, that's our biggest sort of mission statement is ensuring that there is accountability. So, Within proxy access, there was the the hope or the intent was to give investors a voice in director nominations, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's not, I think, uh, a mandate in terms of who needs to be elected or who needs to be put up, but some way in which investors have a tool to say, look, you know, this board is not what we want. Um, This board is not doing what we have asked them in essence. And so here's the ability for other investors to potentially vote on a different slate. And I think it's a really important one because um, there's so much support generally for directors Um, You know, if you Mm -hmm. look at the Russell 3, the last time I checked, maybe there's 100 directors that don't get a majority vote. I mean, that's that's an exceedingly small amount and some might get less than others. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's where they're focused on. But I really think that having proxy access is sort of this thing sort of lying out on the side that says, look, company or board in Mm -hmm. particular, um, here's the thing that you have instituted in your bylaws to ensure that investors have more of a say. And um, I think the fear back then was that the activists and hedge funds would use that, but you know, mm-hmm. no activist or hedge fund are going to hold stock for three years before mm-hmm. they do something right. So that I think was a fear that went and realized what I'm looking toward is someone who uses it. Sure. You know, and there's some rumblings in the investor world to try to get more, um, I think, employees onto boards. There's that mm-hmm. initiative. I think from our perspective, you know, employees are not independent. And so it makes it a little bit difficult to um, support them if we're in a market where it's not a regulated part of a board. But, you know, again, I think the opportunity is there for investors to use it. And so, 
Yeah. Well, what, what, one thing that I thought was interesting is the companies that were targeted had, uh, there were three uh, themes. There was lack of diversity, there was uh, climate change, and there was uh, excessive compensation. And that was kind of the list compilers. If the board lacked one of these three items, this is where uh, the bylaws or the proxy access would be uh, implemented. And so yeah. I, I thought I thought it was a, a it's a very interesting proposal from a governance side on proxy mm-hmm. access that was adopted through an investor as opposed to a regulator. And in 2017, the 2.0 side <laughs> of this uh, boardroom accountability uh, went into action. And again, you targeted diversity, <laughs> implemented board matrix and board refreshment. And yeah. I think the interesting side of this was the board matrix. What can you tell us about that push on the board matrix and why was that a focus? Yeah, I think it was trying to clarify you know, why board members were on the boards. You know, I think that, I mean, it's very easy for investors to just read the bio of an, you know, for a particular board member with their um, lovely photos and ask the question, like, what are they adding to this Mm -hmm. board? You know, and most companies, I don't think, disclose exactly the responsibility of any board member um, and what they do. I think General Motors reports on what committees do um, and what they've accomplished this year, which is, I think, a huge step up. But there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of opacity around the boardroom. So investors generally think historically that, you know, boardrooms are these like smoky, velvet curtained, you know, um, tables where people are like, eating beef stroganoff and making decisions. <laughs> and I think more and more what's happened is that curtain sort of, you know, the the wizard is being shown and that curtain is being pulled back. And the question is being asked, why, why are you on this board? What are you bringing to this board? And in particular, I think if a board isn't diverse, if a board hasn't turned over, like are your skill sets continuing to be an asset to this company or is the half a million dollars that you're getting, you know, for director fees, could that actually go to somebody else who might have a better skill set to oversee the company today versus 15 years ago? So I think that's, that's where it comes from. And to do it in a, a format that's easily digestible, you know, Investors have to read a lot of different formats to get information, whether it be an annual report, a proxy statement, or the website. You know, you got to go everywhere to find something. But I think this push was to ensure that something was in a filing that could be easily um, digestible. I, you know, sometimes, and I've heard team members say this, maybe we're a little bit too ahead of our time with, mm-hmm. in particular, the um, race disclosure, because, as you know, most companies don't disclose um, individual sort of race makeup on their board. They, they might have like a pie chart or they might do an aggregate. Um, but we've heard from external search firms this year that this is sort of the year where directors are standing up and um, self-disclosing and being, I think, uh, more emboldened to um, say who they are and you know who they might represent as a community. So we'll see if this sort of moves a little bit forward in 
some of the disclosure for companies going forward. So, you know, why don't you tell us what what uh, focus have you had this year? Yeah. So I think in terms of, you know, Boardroom Academy 3.0, because mm-hmm. we love using this versioning thing, apparently, mm-hmm. um, it's been around instituting a Rooney rule for mm-hmm. boardrooms and um, external CEO searches, you know, mm-hmm. so institutionalizing some of the language that says uh, an initial pool of candidates should include or will include a woman and someone of a racial or ethnic minority, you know, to try to, I think, move this process forward in terms of at least getting a candidacy of um, diversity within the boardroom and these CEO searches. So they've been pretty successful. They require a lot of discussion, right? Because mm-hmm. you're wordsmith- wordsmithing, mm-hmm. you know, governance disclosure, and there's a lot of back and forth that goes with it. But at least 20 companies have some form of renewal in terms of boardroom and um, external CEO searches, and that will continue. And then the second thing is, you know, employee diversity in terms of the disclosure of uh, EEO one report. Um, and what we did is target companies that made statements around racial inequality, mm-hmm. um, systemic racism as a way, you know, for me, it's a CEO accountability project. If I could do my CEO accountability 1.0, this would be it to mm-hmm. say, uh, CEOs, show us your EOs, you know, show us what changes you've made within your company. It's all very well and good to make um, very, very impressive statements, I think, about what a company needs to do um, within society. But I think, you know, what they have most control over is what the company does inside. So what we're hoping for, and we've now got a majority of the SAP 100 to either disclose currently or commit to disclosing their EO1 reports. So along with a lot of other investors, I think there is a huge push for that um, in the oncoming, in the upcoming year and proxy season. I think the other push um, is ensuring that, you know, employees in particular for certain companies where there were uh, media reports of unsafe working conditions, you know, and lack of sort of assistance around the pandemic. I think those those will be the second group of companies that many investors will be will be targeting. Okay. Um, w- one thing that I find interesting is something that has happened in California, and maybe you have a, an opinion on this. There was a law, um, uh, the SBA 26, that mandated gender diversity on boards uh, passed two years ago. And just uh, at the end of September of this year, there was AB 979, which is a very similar law that mandates uh, a minimum of underrepresented community members in uh, in boards of companies headquartered in California. Now, the interesting thing is there there is a lot of constitutional issues with those laws, but the companies voluntarily have adopted to this. So I think in a similar way, right, uh, just like proxy access, where regulations formerly didn't pass muster, yep. the companies adopted these practices. And, yep. and I feel like this is something that's happening in California as well, where it's, it's questionable, the legal framework, but despite that questionability, 
uh, companies have adopted this. So is this yeah. something that you also see from the governance perspective from where you sit from? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point. And it's a great analogy, right? That, you know, there's this sort of like principled idea that mm -hmm. gets brought out. And then companies realize, I think, doing their own sort of assessment, you know, that that would be easier to comply with and that they could do so voluntarily. And I also think it has to do with a more, I, I don't know if it's forward looking, but trying to, I think, build their own culture um, within the company, trying to incentivize their own employees, you know, that they're doing something. And in particular, I think California headquarters companies, you know, are very focused, I think, on that type of messaging, um, generally because there's been bad messaging, right, in terms of management and diversity and mm -hmm. sort of accountability. So I think it's, I think it's really fascinating, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I support California as a Californian <laughs> and, you know, trying to get that principle out there. No, that's great. Uh, you know, obviously one area that has a lot of press is this uh, statement from the business roundtable on stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder primacy. And uh, a lot of companies are uh, talking about uh, stakeholders in a bigger way and having purpose. As an investor, how do you think about this rule? And, uh, you know, I had in, in a prior podcast, the mm -hmm. uh, uh, CEO of, of ICGN, who said, look, ultimately, it's the shareholders who have the vote. And so uh, it's an interesting dilemma, right? Uh, I know that the Council of Institutional Investors initially opposed this a statement of the purpose of uh, the corporation. How do you think about this uh, new statement? Yeah, no, I think it's it's very complicated. It's a complicated statement because it depends on where you sit in the investor spectrum. Mm -hmm. you, you know, a large asset manager may think about it very differently than an asset owner as, you know, where I'm sitting. So I think from my perspective, it's not that much different um, because ultimately investors, particularly asset owners, bring a lot of stakeholder concerns to companies sort of spotlight, you know, and that um, focus in particular around labor because we're a pension fund, you know, will not go away. So I do think maybe it was a little bit of like it stirred more controversy than maybe it should have. But what's fascinating is where you put the CEO statement versus sort of a boardroom accountability mm -hmm. being an issue because investors, I think, have always focused on the board as part of their sort of lever to get companies to do something, right? We don't, as investors, we're not voting on the corporate social responsibility officer, right? We're voting on a CEO and potentially a committee that oversees social responsibility at the company. So I think it will be interesting to see how it, it may play out, but I was involved in, um, a group called the test of corporate purpose, hmm. where the idea was measuring, you know, some of the metrics around in particular um, social inequality against some of the companies under the BSR that made, you know, these statements um, in terms of what a purpose of a corporation is. So I think investors are looking more and more toward, we, we heard what you said, 
Mm -hmm. you know, but what are the quantitative metrics that you can disclose so that we understand what you're actually doing? And I think that's a huge difference since um, 2004 to now is the amount of data, Mm -hmm. right? I think investors are calling companies to disclose. So no more is it a PowerPoint or like pictures of happy employees, you know, building tents, which is very good. Um, It's more about, you know, voluntary and involuntary turnover rates. It's about, you know, return on investment for your employees. And I think that will only be, um, I think, highlighted when we're talking about stakeholders. So I have a, a final question on governance before we go into the rapid fire question side. But, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren at some point uh, proposed the Accountability Act where she said that members of the board, we should include the employees. You mentioned earlier mm-hmm. uh, this idea that was a little bit complicated because of independent issues. Do yeah. you think we'll ever see this in U.S. boards like in Germany or is this just a... Uh, wishful thinking from uh, one side of the spectrum. I I appreciate the one side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, if we can't even have uh, obstacles taken away for shareholder proposal rules that are non-binding, it really, to me, I think it makes me pessimistic that something like this would be an extremely controversial move for mm-hmm. any company, maybe save, um, I think it's either, is it UPS or FedEx that owns a lot of the company through its own retirement plan? Oh, interesting, so employees, yeah. I think have... Um, leverage you know within the company as their own investors which i think is an interesting model and it may work in a company like that but Mm -hmm. they may not even need it you know ultimately because they own that much so i i would be not unhappy if it were to happen but i i really think that um you know the business roundtable will do everything they possibly can to try to strike it down Okay. Okay. I mean, obviously there are so many things going on in the governance world that there's going to be a lot, a lot to discuss. So let's move into the rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? Yes. Um, I would say uh, John Steinbeck's East of Eden Great. because it brought out how dysfunctional families are, you know, and it was very um, biblical and interesting I would say um, some works by Foucault, you know, who brought out the idea of sort of biopower and how the state, I think, can come into sort of the lives of individuals. And then I just read this book that mm-hmm. uh, I brought, which is called The Happiness Industry. Okay. Is written by William Davis, who professes to be an economic psychologist, which I thought, Evan, huh. you, you should read this book because okay. it details basically how government and big business have taken over this idea of well-being mm. and internalize, I think, what individuals have to do to be happy. So it blew my mind. So I want everyone to read it. Okay. Okay. Well, well, and by the way, all of these uh, recommendations are added in the notes and the show notes of this episode. So it's easy to, to find, you know, who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Yeah, this is tough, but I'm going to say, I think I'm going to say my late grandmother, 
Um, because she divorced her husband when she was 18 in Japan, which Mm. is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then worked at a telephone operating company, you know, until she retired. So what I learned from her is, you know, you as a woman can always, I think, take care of yourself and you should ensure your own financial stability if possible. Yeah, I love that one. Are there any? Sorry. I don't have any quotes. Do you have quotes? (laughs) Yeah. Are there any quotes that you think of often or live your life by? Well, I'd say there, it's not a quote per se, but this 2020 has really highlighted, I think for me, the importance of just, just doing something, you know, that you Mm -hmm. have to live your life Mm -hmm. today. So for example, I went to two Broadway shows, once at the end of February and once at the beginning of March. And I was like, why am I doing this? I'm so busy. It's almost proxy season. But then there was a whole <laughs> shutdown and like, who knows if I'll ever see a Broadway show again, you yeah, know? So yeah. that seems really simple. But I think, I think, you know, you, we always say time is money, but it's, it's not true because mm-hmm. there's a finite amount of time and there's potentially, depending on where you're, an infinite amount of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, not for me, but you know, <laughs> for, for, for the business roundtable anyway. But like, what's more important is time. Sure. It makes me think a little bit. How, how is how are things in New York? I mean, now today, these days, I mean, yeah. th- you, you did go through like a very dark oh, period. So dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, so dark that we basically didn't leave the house for t- two months. Sure. You know that. Um, and just the amount of, I think, um, chaos, you know, within the hospitals and people um, passing away every day, even the comptroller's mother passed away mm-hmm. during the pandemic. So it, it really did bring it home. I think now we're sort of resolute. Um, mask wearing is still, you know, pretty much a, a daily activity. And it's it's more the impacts, I think, around... Um, the children and schooling that has, you know, really been, I think, a a mess. So institutions are not necessarily ready to handle, you know, some of the after effects. So So are you, are you working from home? Yes. Yes. So we have been home. So this is Friday the 13th. Okay. And my first day working remotely, which was unprecedented in the New York City Comptroller's office, People came in during after Sandy. I mean, like people do not work wow. remotely for New York City, but was March 13th, which was also Friday hmm. the 13th. So here's to eight months wow. to the day. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a trend that will remain, right? Like working from home for a big segment of yeah. professionals all over and we'll see how it changes. And how that impacts, I think, their work life sure. you know, and how companies monitor you know monitor them i mean all that i think is is a new frontier yeah and what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love so i love popcorn okay whenever there's popcorn i can't focus on anything until i finish the entire Uh bowl of popcorn so i can't buy popcorn i shouldn't be around popcorn because it's also not attractive you know when you're stuffing your yeah so movies we got to be careful if, yeah. if theaters come back uh popcorn yeah, and you're not going to eat popcorn 
All right. And, and which living person do you most admire? Yes. So I would say back to where we began, um, one of my professors in anthropology was a woman named Laura Nader, mm -hmm. whose brother you might know because it's Ralph. Ralph. Mm -hmm. um, and her, I mean, she had the most, I think, brilliant mind when it came to understanding sort of the nature of power and, you know, speaking out. And she once said, and this will never leave me, she said, um, you have to dr dress conservatively if you're going to have extremely revolutionary ideas. Hmm. And I was like, yes, because if someone can find so many ways to already discredit you before you can even get in the door, you know, that is basically a, a battle lost. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And so in times this of, is why I dress like an old lady constantly. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, you know, what happens in, in, in work from home environment, now we, maybe that uh, is being taken out of the equation yeah. because it's all online. I know. Well, Yumi, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this has been great to talk governance with you. You have so much experience as an investor in these different asset managers and now in the New York City's controller's office. I'm sure, uh, as we discussed, there's going to be a lot of evolution in many ways, in many areas of governance, in ma many areas of companies. So thank you again for taking the time. And I hope to see you soon after this coronavirus ends, if the vaccine is, is real and, and solves the world. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you, Evan. All right. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.